This is a Tech Briefs Media Group podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of Who's Who at NASA. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Bruce Wilicki, Senior Earth Scientist within the Science Directorate at Langley Research Center. Dr. Wilicki is also the Science Lead of the Clario mission. Clario is one of the Tier 1 Earth Science Decadal Survey missions. Bruce, thank you for joining us today. Glad to be here. Bruce, can you start by giving us the basics? What is the Clario mission? Yeah, Clario is a, is a mission to really take us into a new level of, of accuracy of instruments in orbit. Uh, we sometimes kind of jokingly call it NIST, uh, NIST in orbit. It's taking some of these uh, really high accuracy infrared and reflected solar capabilities we've developed in the laboratories at places like NIST and some of the NASA research centers and getting them up into orbit primarily with the mission of getting that accuracy all the way from international standards up into orbit, seeing the whole Earth, so that we can get really accurate climate change data about where the, where the planet's going. You know, there's a lot of discussion, arguments about uh, how accurate different data sources are. Uh, this really takes it to that next level, and really instead of targeting accuracy the way we normally do for kind of instantaneous weather measurements, it targets that accuracy at decadal change measurements. And those are typically required at almost a factor of five or ten more accurate than weather observations are. To give you an example, you might need a, a one Kelvin temperature measurement uh, to understand tomorrow's weather, but you need like a tenth of a Kelvin accuracy to get uh, decadal change as we uh, uh, basically put greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and have to watch how the planet's responding and then... Uh, make our changes relative to that. So that's really Clario's mission, is to get that accuracy up in orbit, and then also to do it across the full spectrum of Earth's energy emitted to space, because that's what drives climate. So the reflected solar all the way from the ultraviolet into the near-infrared, and then the infrared all the way from the mid through the far infrared. And that far infrared has never even been observed before from space, so that's kind of a new exciting part of this mission. And... uh, it allows Clario to also up there cover so much of the spectrum that we can become a standard radiometer in order to, to improve the calibration of other instruments. So weather instruments or Landsat instruments or, or series radiation budget, we can actually match them in time, angle, space, calibrate them much more accurately to our standard that then is traced back to these international standards and kind of bring, bring the whole observing system up in accuracy and capability. How else do these tools uh, ensure accurate results? Well, what they really do is they're designed to to both one think of this as the way we build instruments normally is we're trying to see the whole earth at really high resolution, see down to pixels where we can get individual clouds, for example, or or landscapes for vegetation. These instruments are kind of the opposite mode. We we back off in things like spatial resolution to make them simpler, but we, we hone in in terms of really high accuracy. So, for example, we'll use the sun and the moon as, as standard references out there in orbit to uh, so these instruments can point not only at the Earth but off at the sun and the moon. Uh, we'll have special black bodies. Uh, black body is kind of a deep cavity where you can control very accurately the temperature that you're getting into the instrument and then know that temperature with, with accuracy that's found at hundreds of a degree because we will put in things like phase change cells where you can actually change different materials from solid to liquid and know exactly where those temperatures are and then use those across ranges of temperature to nail down that black body. Many of those little individual things 
how it really add up to that accuracy in orbit. We can't afford to do that kind of accuracy on, on most of our weather and other instruments. Uh, so what we have to go for here is kind of a really different shot at how to do that. And where does the Clara mission stand currently, and how have budget cuts kind of changed the plans? Yeah, that's been the bad news for us. I mean, the science itself has, has been extraordinary. We've got an incredible science team that spent about three years really uh, well-determining the science requirements. We've got the climate modeling community involved. So we're actually simulating the Clario observations in climate models so we can actually show over a 100-year model simulation what Clario would have seen, what it could have told us about climate change. But just as we were ready to knock on the door that was going to start this mission formally, uh, that's when the budget cuts to NASA's or science program came. So we're now on indefinite hold, and instead of having a launch date in 2017 or 18, we're now kind of idling, and, and instead of marching toward a mission date, what we're doing instead is continuing to extend the accuracy of the science studies, in particular these climate model, we call them OSSEs, Observing System Simulation Experiments, and then also retiring some of the risks in technology. For, so, for example, instruments this accurate haven't been done before in space, so there's things we're doing on the ground where we're building example demonstrations of these instruments so that we can prove, along with NIST, who's working one of our partner, as one of our partners, uh, that we can achieve this kind of accuracy. Yeah, I'm interested in the idea of technical risks and, and what you mean by those, and, and how are you improving upon those to make a future mission more straightforward? That's a, that's a good question. Um, technical risks, really, if you think about it, any, all of our NASA missions are trying to do something new. So the risk is really, can you take from the laboratory into an actual instrument that's going to go into space, get it up in space through launch, through contamination in orbit, through all the other things that might go through, and then achieve what it is you're, you're doing. And in our case, it's, it's pushing accuracy to levels, probably a factor of five beyond what current instruments do. And that just re requires a lot more care, detail, independent verification systems. It's, it's a lot more like what the metrology world does, actually. And the metrology world is, is the people like NIST, like the National Physics Lab in the U.K., the German lab. And if you think about it, no one accepts an international standard for the meter or the kilowatt, I mean, or the kilogram or the watt until multiple independent groups have verified at high accuracy with uncertainty determination of every component of them, what we know and don't know about the observation. So a lot of what Clara is retiring risk now is all of that traceability of every possible air source, how it could come unglued in different ways if you didn't do it right, and then build up a really rigorous air budget of, of what's normally called uh, SI or international standard traceability. Uh, to the accuracy levels we need. And that's why we've engaged people like NIST who've been doing this in the laboratory for a long time. Um, NASA Goddard's involved, uh, JPL, uh, us at NASA Langley. Um, we even have some of the other uh, national physics labs around the world involved, uh, the UK in particular. Can you go through some of the main instruments that you're building in the laboratory and, and how they relate to their use in, in the Clarion? Yeah, sure. Um, one of them is a reflected solar spectrometer, and uh, that one will have about a 100-kilometer swath with about a half-kilometer fields of view. It's a 2D detecting array, so uh, it's kind of a push broom in orbit. So it's as you sweep along the ground, uh, one linear dimension is mapping the Earth in a 100-kilometer swath. The other dimension is doing the spectrum of reflected solar radiation. So that direction we're getting from about uh, 350 nanometers out to 2,300 nanometers. That includes about 98% of the 
reflected solar energy the Earth puts back out to space. We needed to get that high to get kind of the accuracy in the total Earth's reflectance of sunlight, which is a critical climate component, but then relates to some of our things like cloud feedback that then drives uncertainties in climate sensitivity. So that's, that's one of our driving accuracy goals. And so that spectrometer uh, will be very accurately designed. So, for example, polarization sensitivity, a normal imager like a MODIS or a VIRS might have sensitivity to polarization of about uh, 1 or 2%, maybe as much as 4% with some slow drifts in orbit. This instrument is going to be uh, insensitive to polarization that's closer to a quarter percent. So again, factors of uh, 5 to 10 uh, tighter accuracy constraints than uh, some of those other instruments. And the other big difference we're doing is, is to be able to look directly at the sun and the moon. So using uh, precision apertures, uh, filters, um, other things to kind of bring the solar irradiance down into an Earth radiance dynamic range, and then use that to be able to test, for example, the subtle nonlinearities you might get in an instrument. It's only at 1 or 2%. Again, things that aren't critical for a weather observation, but when you're going for our, our accuracy for that solar instrument in Clario, is going to be 0.3% 2 sigma or 95% confidence, so much tighter goals. So you've got to understand stray light better. You've got to understand how you look at the sun and the moon. So with Clary, our idea is for sort of with no attenuators in, in place between us and the instrument, we look at the moon. CWIS have done some of that, by the way, for stability. So they know their stability to like a tenth or two-tenths of a percent over years. Uh, but we'll be doing it more for absolute accuracy, and uh, that will require both the sun and the moon to be used. You mentioned working with NIST as well. What are the other teams? You mentioned some of the teams you're working with, but how is that? How is the work and the responsibilities divided, and, and who's doing what, and what's it like to work in that sort of coordinated approach? Yeah, it's a good question. That's really been a, a fantastic collaboration for us because NIST, of course, is really interested in where the need to push metrology is in terms of accurate standards that really can benefit the world. And when we brought Clario to them, uh, the real advantage was we needed improved standards out into some wavelength ranges, but they had done some original explorations, and they were slowly moving in that direction, but we gave them a lot more impetus for why it was important to get there now. So in particular, the far infrared wavelengths beyond about 15 or 20 micron, out to 100 micron, and then in the near infrared, uh, they had things really well understood out to maybe 11, 1,200 nanometers, but as you started to get out to... Uh, 23, 2400 nanometers, they still needed some work to do. So for us, it's kind of helped them focus on their next steps. And they've done a great job of working with us collaboratively. So they're putting some of their own resources into advancing those standards. We're trying to help them with some key uh, small things we can get them some additional resources on to kind of speed things up. And uh, so we have regular meetings with them. We have a formal agreement with NIST. We uh, also have formal agreements with the United Kingdom, with their National Physics Lab, um, with their Climate Modeling Center, and uh, also some of their universities that are involved as well. And what is your specific role in the program? Can you talk to me about your day-to-day -day work? Yeah, sure. I'm the cat herder, is probably what you would call me. I'm, I'm a science team lead on science teams, especially Diversus Claria, where we have infrared spectra. That's the other instrument I didn't talk about that's, that's just as important as our solar reflected spectra. Um, so we have teams of scientists involved in, in reflected solar, teams of scientists in the infrared, and then teams of radio occultation. That's the other instrument that 
we can already do at the accuracy Clary is looking for, but we need to get that sampling up there in orbit. Um, and then you've got to take those to first teams and get them to agree on science requirements across the whole mission. So we've really worked hard on not just saying we need really accurate data, but defining when do you reach the, the point of diminishing returns. So, for example, you don't need perfect data. So somewhere you've got to define the real level of accuracy you need. And what we really were able to achieve was to very rigorously define that what really was needed was to get under the natural variability or noise of the climate system itself, because we only have one Earth. So what we really do is we use natural variability, things like El Nino, mm -hmm. as, a, as a floor, and then get our accuracy by a factor of two under that. And then once you go up below that, then, then you're at a point of diminishing returns. So it kind of lets us more rigorously understand what those accuracy requirements really are. So I heard those cats to get all that story together and uh, just make sure that we don't uh, scratch each other's eyes out as we're going at it. Sure. Because it gets pretty exciting with scientists in the room. They're all very bright, very determined, uh, very strongly motivated people. And so you can imagine a room of 50 of those people arguing about uh, the relative importance of different science topics. It gets pretty exciting. Sure. And, and I just want to make sure we cover uh, the infrared radiation because it seems like there's some really innovative stuff going on there. And uh, uh, we didn't really necessarily get a chance to go into it. But um, sure. can you talk well, about the work me, there? Let me talk about the infrared a little bit then. The, the infrared is one of the, the more exciting things is that we're getting into a, about half of the whole infrared radiation the Earth's uh, emitting out to space, seeing it for the first time in a spectrum. And that's kind of out there beyond from 15 to 50 micron wavelengths called the fire infrared. It's where most of the water vapor greenhouse is. So uh, all this thing about water vapor feedback you hear in the climate system is because of increased water vapor as you warm the Earth's atmosphere, it holds more water vapor. That itself is a greenhouse gas. It therefore amplifies the carbon dioxide warming we get almost by a factor of two. And so this will be the first time we really see this globally everywhere in spectra as well at high accuracy. And uh, that instrument is a Fourier transform spectrometer. It has about a 25-kilometer field of view at Nader. It uh, basically looks at Nader in, in its spectral benchmarking mode. Uh, one of Clario's visions here is to not only work as a as sort of a transfer radiometer in orbit to calibrate other instruments, but also our, our own spectra by themselves looking at Nader will be a, a spectral fingerprinting method for climate change. It turns out you can show in the climate models that uh, these spectra, when you average them over time to very large time and space scales, like zonal annual or global annual, are very powerful constraints because the, the spectrum is showing you different signals of different wavelengths. And unlike our normal remote sensing instruments where we might try very accurately to get our instrument noise down to do a retrieval at a single point, this is a very different way of going at it. You go for very high accuracy spectra averaged over very large time and space scales. And then you're looking at climate change anomalies over years to decades and pulling climate change signals out of those spectra. So it's kind of, we, we typically call it spectral fingerprinting or spectral benchmarking on the Clario team. At this point, what has Clario been able to determine about uh, how the Earth is changing temperature? Well, Clario itself is up in orbit, so what we really have been doing is doing all the scientific studies to show what you could do if you had this kind of data. Um, right now itself, until we get up in orbit, we won't have that. Um, but the other thing we can do beforehand is 
we can even show that some parts of these signals will get very quickly in just a few years. Some parts of them, because of climate noise in the system, will take 10 years. Some will take 20 years. So this is also the beginning of a, what we, we really call a cornerstone or anchor of the climate observing system. Because if you think about it, if Clario is up there to anchor a whole suite of solar and infrared instruments like uh, your weather interferometers that are doing uh, infrared spectra, like Chris on uh, NPP or JPSS, or you've got the VERS and MODIS imagers doing everything from vegetation to snow and ice to ocean, sea surface temperature, and you, you're putting all those instruments on a much higher accuracy standard. You've got Ceres doing radiation budget sensing and uh, keeping track of what's going on in things like critical things like cloud feedback and cloud rays effects on the planet. All those things are going to be brought up to a higher level if we can get Clario up there. Are there similar missions that are providing uh, complementary data? Not, not right now. This is really kind of a, a totally new concept. There are other groups that have tried to propose similar things. Uh, for example, there's a, uh, a UK group led by Nigel Fox at their National Physics Lab who proposed one called Truths, and that was to do a reflective solar, pretty much to reflect the solar part of our Clario mission, and even to take it a, a, a step further than we did. Um, and that was proposed to ESA about four or five years ago. Um, and so we've been working actively with them because ultimately what you really want is the U.S. to put up one of these and then the international community to put up their own version of it. And then just like metrology labs for international standards, you shoot it out between those different laboratories. And so given the critical nature of climate change accuracy to us, this is just kind of fundamental basic scientific practice to do this. And uh, so we're very actively trying to help the Truths mission, and then there's another one in Italy called Forum that's trying to do an infrared spectrometer uh, to try to get their own efforts going in the same direction. And ultimately, in the long run, you'd have Clarium up there with a U.S. version of these instruments and then the international community with a separate, and we kind of shoot it out for who's really, who's really got the accuracy and what climate change is really doing. What would you say is the biggest challenge from a, a technical perspective when you're developing uh, these instruments in the lab setting? Yeah, the biggest challenge, I think, in these is, is, is not to get too fancy in the technology. So in, in general, we are not using kind of cutting-edge detectors or, or other things that you might do, or, you know, like huge optics. So you know, the optics on our instruments are like an inch. You know, they're, they're tiny. Um, so what you do instead is you really have the challenge of focusing on crossing the T's and dotting the I's and putting independent verification methods on everything that can change an instrument in orbit. So to give you an example, you know, if it's a black body, you want to monitor its emissivity. That's not something you normally do in an instrument, but you would on Claria. Um, and we, we do that in one way with a, with a QCL laser and another way with something called a a heated halo in front of the black body. Um, when you're doing the reflected solar, you've got multiple different different types of precision apertures, some which you use commonly, some which you don't. Some of these techniques have been used before on things like, uh, for example, the, the source solar radiance, uh, high accuracy data for sun sunlight coming to the planet. Um, so a lot of what we're doing is taking things that are kind of cutting edge for accuracy, but not normally put on instruments because you just couldn't afford to do it on an instrument that had a huge optic. I mean, imagine an instrument that was a, had a, had a, a half meter uh, 
optic and you were going to try to get a black body so big you could actually turn the entire instrument and look at a black body. It'd be a monstrous black body. So, you know, you want to get with instruments like Clario, when you're looking at your calibration sources, you want the entire optical path to be identical to when you look at the Earth. Otherwise, you now you've got all these things you haven't calibrated out that are kind of sitting there in uncertainty. So that's that's really kind of the challenge, and uh, I think the people who work in the instruments love this. Uh, it's, it's kind of a, like I said, it's kind of a marriage between what NIST does and NASA does, and uh, so that's been part of the excitement of working. Given uh, the budget cuts, do you ever get impatient with getting these missions off the ground? Oh, yeah, yeah, we get frustrated all the time. But <laughs> <laughs> you kind of go from... Uh, from heaven thinking you've got all the pieces put together, like it was a year ago we did our mission concept review and we just got rave reviews. I mean, the, the engineers said they'd never seen a mission with the engineering and science melded together that rigorously before and uh, we were all just glowing until the uh, we knocked on the door and then they <laughs> slammed mm-hmm. it in our face and said, oops, uh, there's not any money to do this right now. So, But, you know, this is not new. I mean, this happens to satellite missions all the time because the cost is high. You, you can't get the space cheap. And so what happens is uh, there's inevitable uh, glitches in funding profiles that will delay you. I mean, the global precipitation mission has been going through this for years. They're finally got, getting their uh, uh, mission together. Um, Ceres, for example, was taken off the MPP mission because of just simply cost constraints. And then three or four years later, it was reinstated, and uh, it's now up there uh, on that mission we just launched uh, this October. So you can't get too depressed by it. If you do, uh, you're you're not going to last in this business. You've got to be a master of uh, late gratification. Sure. And speaking of your mission concept review, in an ideal world with all the funding necessary, what would uh, we be accomplishing with Curia? Well, with Clario, if we went up there, we would have, we would have, launched about 2017 or 18, and then what we would have been accomplishing is really serving as that anchor of, of much of the climate observing system and taking it to a, a new accuracy. You know, another way to explain what we, what we do is if you have a observation of climate change over decades, uh, you have error sources in those observations, and those error sources have to be compared to natural variability. So you can actually ask yourself, if I had had a perfect observing system, how quickly could I have seen climate change and understood what it was over natural variability? And Clario is designed to be so accurate that that those observations would slow down that perfect system by only about 10, 15%. So, for example, let's say you needed 10 or 20 years to see that trend above natural variability, say it was 20. With Clario, you could see that in, like, 22 with a normal observing system, it might take you easily 30 years to see the same trend. So you might be accelerating 10 years when you get critical information to know what the planets have done. And I think as we advance toward trying to control climate change, we're still struggling getting our head around that. As we do and as we make changes, we're going to want to see as soon as possible the response of the climate system to those changes. And Clario is one of the steps we can take to get that information not 30 years out, but 20 years out, or not 20 years out, but 10 years out. So that's really kind of the value of this mission. And just to wrap things up, what would you say is your favorite part of the job? Uh, 
just such a talented team of scientists and engineers. I mean, I, we really have had a, an almost magical group on Clario. It's not that it's been easy and everybody's been wonderful all the time, but but the dedication and, and uh, talent on that team has just been extraordinary. And so that's kind of been the biggest charge for me is to watch us over the last three years kind of evolve a, a very solid uh, understanding of what this mission ought to be and, and even what it shouldn't be. I mean, there were lots of things that tried to get added to this mission as well, and we were able to, to very rigorously understand what, what made sense and what didn't. And so that's probably been the most satisfying thing for me, I think. Well, Bruce, we at NASA Tech Bruce want to thank you for taking the time to be with us here. No problem. Thanks. I enjoyed it.